Hello and welcome to Questonia, where we ask the questions we think need answering in Estonian news and culture. I'm Stuart Garlick and I'm here with Marie Selvand. We're recording on Wednesday, May 27th, and this podcast is released on Thursday, May 28th. Um, Maris, you're in the garden and you're underneath some uh, some some birds. So clearly, the spring is uh, is is out and raging. But um, um, how how are how are things over at your family's place? Well, it's finally getting warm and green, and there, there's uh, loads of daffodils and dandelions and tulips, and the nightingale is singing. So it's really, really nice to be out in the nature for a change. Yeah, and it's just incredible how we can use technology now to even record a podcast in the garden. Um, I'm I'm thinking back to the days of dial-up internet, which ages me a lot. And uh, you know, th- this this would have been unthinkable even uh, ten, fifteen years ago, wouldn't it? Oh yes, <laughs> this is brilliant. Yes. So today we had a plan to talk about education and we're still going to do that and about the transfer to distance learning that uh, Estonian schools and universities made. Um, like I say, we will do that. But uh, first, incoming yesterday, uh, <coughs> Ruth Anus, head of the Department of Citizenship and Migration Policy of the uh, Ministry of the Interior. So basically one of the top civil servants uh, at the Interior Ministry. Uh, um, whose minister is uh, Mart Helmer, the leader of ECRA, um, the far-right partners in the Estonian government. She informed the Ministry of Education that it may not be possible for third-country nationals to study at Estonian universities in the autumn. Uh, This has just been announced in the last day, obviously, and it will cause... I would think, some fairly urgent reorganisation at universities. Um, Arne Valk, uh, the Vice Rector for Studies at the University of Tartu, said on the ATV uh, breakfast show Television, he said, if we talk about freshmen and third country students, it probably means about half a million, um, um, a, a financial hole of about half a million euros in one semester. If we talk about a long time and all international students, it still it, it means several million uh, euros um, financial hole. Statistics Estonia reports that 5,500 third country nationals, that is uh, people from uh, outside of the EU and e- European economic area, uh, studied at Estonian universities in the past academic year. This seems like an extension, Maurice, of the emergency situation which we were all led to believe came to an end uh, two Sundays ago. But um, are the government right, do you think, to take um, a prudent attitude towards future outbreaks of coronavirus? Or is this all a distraction for some kind of other agenda? Well, this is clearly another example of how the government is just trying using the public health crisis as a pretext to implement some of their more um, xenophobic um, and closing Estonia in policies. Because if this was just very clearly, if this is a public health issue, you can um, implement uh, 14-day quarantine measures for all incoming students, regardless. And even in this letter, it is mentioned the the, uh, the list of 10 countries are described not as the high-risk uh, corona countries, but as a high-risk immigration countries. So it's clearly the, the connection to, uh, to the health situation is um, just as, uh, as uh, limited as uh, 
in the case of the of the strawberry wars where the target has been um, the guest workers from the Ukraine. You can lit- mitigate the health risks with a 14-day quarantine. So this is uh, clearly not uh, not a health issue that is being solved here. In fact, of course, the Minister of Interior uh, well, has been preparing a change into the uh, immigration law since the autumn. And uh, when this first surfaced, it, w- it was very clear that uh, foreign students are one of the target um, for new restrictions. There were several several points uh, suggested in this uh, change of le- amendment of the legislation that uh, would uh, restrict the, the time that foreign students can work, for example, or restrict the possibility to to um, bring along accompanying family members, meaning spouse and children, and uh, and different other restrictions. So it's uh, it's uh, I would I would call it a cruel legislation. It's not it's not uh, straightforward solving an issue, solving a problem. It's um, it's something that is driven by by cruelty and meanness and has no and has not been really thought through in terms of uh, what what is um, the effect or the benefit or the damage to Estonia in terms of the education landscape and uh, economy. Uh, the tuition fees that you mentioned that uh, where the university, Tartu University um, counts about 2.5 million um, euros per year. Um, also Taltec is talking about several millions per year and these foreign students, most of them work part-time, so they pay taxes here, they consume here. So uh, the damage for the economy is much, much larger. And Estonia is, uh, has been uh, uh, promoting foreign specialists to come and work in Estonia who are better equipped to to take up uh, high-skilled jobs here than um, students who have already um, finished their higher education in Estonian universities. So um, it's clearly uh, it's clearly uh, something that is driven by uh, by xenophobia and uh, nothing else. I think you probably agree. One of the reasons that uh, the startup community is against uh, this kind of thing is because it's it's just impossible to fill all the berths in terms of uh, software developers, in terms of technology specialists, uh, through looking inwardly and through looking within Estonia, isn't it? Absolutely. It's, um, it's, uh, it's a very dangerous development. And it's also a very... Uh... A very uh, warning example of uh, legislation because um, as the rep of the Students Association described, um, the, the ministry had a roundtable discussion of different stakeholders of the education, of the higher education, and completely disregarded all ideas and suggestions made by people actually involved in the education sphere. So um, this was just a token event to to say we have involved, but um, disregard everything nevertheless. It's it's, uh, very sad and it has nothing to do with the health issues. I think it's important to uh, point out that uh, Ruth Anos is... uh 
uh, not a March Helmer appointee. She was actually in the civil service uh, at the Interior Ministry before the new government was uh, was uh, created. Um, but uh, could could this be seen as um, a policy from above? Uh, would is is she acting on um, on political orders here? It's clearly a political creation, but uh, I mean, for someone to have worked in this position. Um, for uh, several years, uh, it doesn't um, make a person immune to political influence. If you play devil's advocate, then fine. It's it's okay to talk about um, uh, an education system that is uh, primarily delivered in Estonian and that uh, doesn't... Uh, even if we talk about all of those things, um, the, the end goal, presumably, if we're talking about... Um, potentially losing each major university up to half a million euros per semester has to be to create financially worse off universities um what why would a government do this and um is is the end goal to create the to make the universities more financially dependent on government uh, loans which can then be predicated on them um being politically meddled with this is uh, such a sinister and horrible thought <laughs> for populists. It's easier to govern or to rule, rather, if, if the electorate is dumb. <laughs> so education is detrimental to spread of populism. And um, of course, the, uh, the uh, populists in the government have uh, said uh, or have described the, the universities as... Um, as uh, places where uh, horse thieves are have been educated, so they've actually pictured the universities, and they are uh, as the enemy, and they are um, they are deeply suspect because uh, because uh, it's a widespread um, conviction that universities are somehow spreading uh, left wing liberal worldview. <laughs> So we can we can look at it as a as an attack to weaken universities, but maybe this goes um, a step uh, too far. I hope it does. Well, yes, it's it's not the first time that universities have been under attack. Uh, Interior Minister Matt Helmer last year um, commented that uh, Tallinn University, he said, was uh, full of red professors, as he put it. This is uh, something that's been going on for a while, the the gradual sort of denigration of the reputation of universities uh, by by ministers within the government and by members of the government, hasn't it? Exactly, and that's uh, that's a very a very classic sort of uh, populist um, uh, play, uh, bit of playbook, uh, fight, uh, fighting against um, the elites and for the common man. And the elites are obviously the obnoxious, uh, educated, uh, left-leaning uh, uh, professors. So and, and people dealing with philosophy and humanities. But it's just a, just really only a tool in the in the toolbox of of the populace, and it's it's uh, sadly not something that um, helps the society to thrive. So, and uh, funnily, uh, I mean, we can we can all very easily blame that on uh, Martelme and the populists. But finally, who is enabling it is uh, the Prime Minister Yuri Ratas and his Minister of Education, Miles Reps, both members of the and leaders or long-term leaders of the Centre Party, who still in their 
coalition agreement and all the party programs uh, talk about uh, knowledge-based um, Estonia, knowledge-based economy, while they are actually uh, helping to dismantle this. Well, while I agree with you on Ratas, um, I feel that Miley's reps has been fairly consistently undermined by other ministers uh, who are speaking outside their purview about education. So, uh, for for example, um, Tönis Lucas uh, raised the idea that uh, the majority of university courses should be given in the Estonian language and that there should be um, mandated restrictions on uh, English language tuition within within universities. Um, Apparently Currently, without discussing that with Miley's reps, who I think was actually abroad when he gave that, when when he actually uh, expressed that to the media. So, um, could, could could you argue that uh, there has been a cer- certain drip drip of undermining towards the education minister as well? There definitely has, but um, I must say I I have no pity for her because uh, she is. Uh, um, possibly the number two most influential politician in the center party it's uh, it's a situation of her own making going into this coalition so uh, uh, obviously of course uh, Denis Lucas is someone a politician a long-term politician from Isama who is um, has uh, demonstrated during the last year that he is really ready to jump on the on this populist bandwagon and is uh, um, every now and again experimenting with this uh, uh, soundbite and uh, uh, clickbait uh, expressions. Uh, so, uh, you know, he's, uh, he's just hoping to benefit from that uh, in, in uh, gaining uh, popularity among more right-wing traditional voters. Admissions departments, it's perfectly fine to uh, plan something a couple of years ahead, but uh, we, we're talking about maybe at, at the most one or two months before they need to know who they're taking and who they aren't taking for September. Otherwise, uh, that's going to be a major issue, I would have thought. So, yeah. at least, um, at least according to the comments from from the Tartu University, from Taltech, I I don't think they knew uh, that this was coming. A comment by an Estonian diplomat on this question is that if the Schengen border is being opened for third countries, there is no reason and no grounds to discriminate for against the students coming from these third countries. It is possible to implement a quarantine uh, requirement for the beginning of the stay. So uh, it's clearly a... Uh, sinister legislation uh, by the Ministry of Interior, whereas um, uh, other ministers like the Ministry of Social Affairs, Education and uh, Ministry of Foreign Affairs should have a much uh, stronger say in that question. The question of why third country nationals come to study in Estonia, it's it's something we maybe ought to debunk a bit, I think, because... um, um, there, there is a kernel of truth in it is generally cheaper to study in Estonia than, for example, UK, United States, Canada. It's it's cheaper and it's easier to get here. Can can we debunk the the myth that is growing that um, third country nationals come here because they wish to have an easy pathway to the EU or because uh, they 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 wish to somehow. Um, you know, milk off the system. This, this this is not something generally that third country nationals do when they come to Estonia, is it? 
Absolutely not, because uh, this, in this regard, entering the EU via Estonia is no easier than entering the EU via any other member state. And all, all EU countries, all countries are competing for the international student. Estonia has a fantastic advantage in attracting students, international students, especially for IT sector, because the country ha- still has such a good international reputation as being an IT uh, and digital wonderland. And um, this is the reason why they come and, uh, and uh, the universities, all of them need to, uh, in order to keep their reputation and their, their rankings, they have to, sh- they, they need to uh, watch out whom they accept and they, they the assessment of the students' uh, progress is a crucial part in their in plays in a plays a crucial part in their rankings. So it's not it's uh, it's not really an option for the universities to accept students just for the fee. The universities are vitally interested in uh, giving them this proper education because their own rank depends on that. We have a bit of. Uh, Good news uh, from the Ministry of uh, the Education, where the Minister Reps has said that uh, schools can open for uh, the autumn term on the 15th of August. And what I think, uh, why this is important actually, is that it is uh, shaking a bit on the on the taboo of this extremely long summer break of Estonia. Uh, it it is uh, right now. This option is described as something to help uh, the pupils and students uh, uh, to catch up who have uh, maybe uh, suffered during the distance learning uh, period and after the summer break, and also to uh, to undertake the uh, excursions and uh, some more entertaining activities that. Uh, schools have uh, missed out on but uh, actually I think it's it's uh, it would be a massive uh, change of uh, mindset to start a little bit earlier that's when Finland starts school uh, every year and uh, for Estonia 1st of September has been like the holy grail um, unshakable whereas actually science tells us that uh, three months break is way too long. Students lose so much of what they've learned in during the last year, so that they will spend at least uh, two to three weeks of the new term to refresh and recollect uh, what they've uh, what they've lost over the summer. You talked about breaking the taboo of that extremely long holiday. Uh, two things there. Kids love the extremely long holiday. Uh, parents don't necessarily, but uh, um, and actually most teachers uh, like it because you know the school year is quite intense. And if you if you start to, talking about a ten month school year rather than a nine month one, it generally puts more strain on the teachers' um, um, personal lives as well. I would have thought. Um, what what are the counterpoints to that? Oh, that's uh, that's. It's a, a topic for an, an, uh, a separate podcast. We can talk about that for two hours. Right, right. I, I don't think I want to open this Pandora box. 
No, okay, but uh, still, generally a positive thing for the kids, you would say, to be able to get back to social life. Kids actually miss their uh, friends and miss school by the end of summer so much. So the order of uh, the the most, uh, the strongest uh, uh, proponents of the long summer holiday are the teachers. That's um, right. that's something I'm, I'm pretty sure. We've got a couple of interviews for you now. The first one is with Matthijs Geital, who is a Dutchman who's been teaching in Estonia for many years. And he's teaching at uh, Vimsi Rigi Gymnasium, which is a new school. And he's going to be talking to us about his uh, experience of the transition to distance learning and what his school has done well and uh, what he's maybe found more challenging than other things about the uh, Um, impact of the coronavirus and the quarantine and about how he has uh, mastered moving over to online school with his students. And then we're going to hear from Sila Verzaste, who is a journalism and communications student from Tartu University, about her views on the same thing. So, uh, Matthijs Kvaital, thank you for coming on the programme. Thanks for having me. So, uh, maybe you'd like to tell everyone um, where you're a teacher and what you're a teacher of at the moment. All right. So, I work in VMC Rigi Gymnasium, which is a fairly new school. We started two years ago, and I teach English as a foreign language. Okay. And um, I would imagine that this has been quite a turbulent time for all uh, teachers everywhere. But um, what what in particular have you noticed has uh, got better or made progress since the emergency situation was called and everyone had to go distance learning? Well, we were very quick to transition from classroom teaching to online teaching. So we, we managed over a weekend to actually completely reshape our studies. So in that sense, um, for our school, not much got improved because we already had a very good situation to start with uh, because we have the the whole Google uh, suite available to us. Uh, We can use all of its functions. Um, I'm sure the teachers got better at it. And I think we all got used to the didactics of teaching online. Uh, There's, of course, the difficulties with people not actively having a microphone available or saying that they don't. wondering whether a student is actually at the screen. So I think we got a lot better at dealing with that Um, and particularly also figuring out how can we actually keep using the strategies that we're using now when this whole uh, uh, special state of emergency is over and we're back to classroom teaching. Uh, Are there any, any benefits, for example, to dealing with certain aspects of teaching at distance. Yes, uh, I wonder what were some of the challenges from the teacher's point of view. I have observed it as a parent and uh, I've observed my kids um, trying to do this remote learning. One of them is a gymnasium age as well as your students. But what, what were the challenges for you as a teacher? I think uh, the main challenge is figuring out where you want to communicate. What should you say is the official channel of communication? We have used um, both Discord. Uh, We replaced our full actual school building with a digital school building um, in which we even have uh, voice channels for every single classroom, which is really nice in principle. But we also have our digital study environment for official messages. 
and finding that focus for students saying, look, this is our official communication platform. Uh, we use uh, uh, like one of the two main uh, platforms available. Um, and getting students to consistently look there and not only focus on, for example, Discord um, and saying, well, I didn't see the message. That, that I think is the main struggle. Um, quite like, you know, it's it's the same struggle you would face in normal teaching that people don't look at the homework correctly, but then they amplify this because there's no one telling them, like a teacher, look, I've put the homework here, so have a look there. You do that in the lesson anyway, but they, they're they not as focused. And I think this information overload that students experience, that is the, the biggest struggle. They're stuck at their screen from 8.30 till 4, typically, depending on the times with some breaks, of course. But that's hard to focus on. And, and, and steering that, that is, I think, the biggest challenge we faced. I think some people saw this as an opportunity, I certainly did, to uh, bring education to the places where students most were, which is in front of a screen. And I, I think I felt that uh, some of the distractions that the di digital world brought, um, i.e., you know, when students are looking at their phones under the table, that kind of thing, uh, would somehow evaporate when the lessons themselves were on those devices. But actually, it's been the opposite. It's increased the level of distraction, hasn't it, in some ways? Uh, it has, yes. I, I've experienced it firsthand when I was trying to record a uh, a lesson of my a math lesson of my son for a uh, for my uh, uh, German TV network, and um, the situation was like that. He was in the math class uh, via his phone while he was at the same time playing a game on his uh, on his desktop PC. <laughs> so <laughs> loads of distraction there. And uh, I wonder, Matthias, how have you managed to keep your um, students motivated or how to teach them to motivate themselves? Because that's the main difference, I think, if you have to schedule your own day and, uh, and the keep organized and motivated and disciplined to to do your work in order to avoid a huge task list piling up, which is very discouraging for any one of us. I think you're addressing two very, like you've addressed both some points that are, uh, I think, related. So what Stuart said, the, trying to get this interaction with their actual surroundings was very important for me. Um, I tried to do that with, um, Giving the, we often talk about task-based teaching, so some project that you want to form and using some skills with that. But actually, that that was a solution for me. So, if you're thinking about language teaching, how do I get them to talk? Well, they don't want to talk in a group when there's all these people online at their microphones. So, I wanted them to make a video in their home or around doing something that they like and that they can teach. So, we we decided on making how-to videos, not too difficult, uh, three minutes long find some new vocabulary, put that in an online uh, platform where you can actually study the words so you can also see, have they mastered those words? And let them film this in their own time. So especially with groups that had the first or the last lesson, this was a, a blessing. So we, I, I would say like, we're gonna do a check-in either, for example, the first five minutes of the lesson, if there's any help needed, where are you now? Um, I think something that, 
we should all be doing way more. Uh, this is how it goes in a lot of jobs, doing these small meetings to check where people are and not waste any of their time. And when it was with classes that I had in the middle of the day, um, trying to make small individual consultations or saying, I'm going to be here if you need me, keep me updated on your progress. And checking off when they did that, praise them for saying that you were there, we checked how you were doing and you're on track or marking, you are absent. I hope you're on track, please contact me. Um, it requires a lot in terms of this, this uh, self-guided studying. Uh, one, of, one of the main, I would say, 21st century skills that we need to teach young people and that I think they had a lot of practice with. A bit of motivation and a bit of motivation, uh, as I like to call it. The, the motivation is the notes online, the motivation, you pick your own topic. You teach us what you like. That, that's that's a fascinating point you make about self-guided learning because um, many schools are already uh, going down that path anyway. But some schools have had maybe more of an adjustment to make than others, um, and and also universities as well. Uh, to to what extent do you feel that the more digitally savvy teachers, i.e., the ones who maybe knew their way around the internet quite well previously, are having to teach the school how to move to distance learning? Not just yours, but schools in general. From what you've heard, well, a friend of mine in the Netherlands who teaches biology uh, is is like me and avid gamer, knew his way around Discord, and based on what he saw in my school, uh, he introduced it to their school as an as an online uh, environment. Um, I think everywhere we have those people like torch bearing these kinds of platforms to their schools. But in our school, it was the other way around. Two students actually made a discord for the school as a joke. And well, me and uh, the IT specialist or well, the uh, educational technologist, we picked up on this and we said, God, we have to develop this. We have to use this as a, a digital environment. So. It was actually initiated by students. But coming back to your point, yeah, I think a lot of it depends on young people trying to explain how at least the technological side works. But at the same time, we had one of our 58-year-old colleagues teaching chemistry online, and the students said, we don't notice a difference. It's just you know, as, as if we're in the classroom doing this, and we're even more productive. So... I don't think there's a single side to it, but I think that there, there's a bit of truth to it where you say like, yeah, the young people have to, you know, uh, create create the, the opportunities for everyone else to continue with it. And do you think that this um, experiment, so to say, or involuntary experiment has, um, has led to some valuable knowledge about this um, individual learning paths? Like uh, I've heard that, this remote learning and technology-aided uh, learning ha is much more suitable for some students than for others. Is that, is that something that schools are able to pick up and implement even in normal times? Do you think this is um, really doable in practice or will will, uh, will the schools go back to the uh, old um, old ways of classroom teaching and top down or is there is there going to be more flexibility now that uh, everyone has experienced um, these different ways well i think there's two very undeniable truths that we can find from this this one group of students needs school needs to be in a building needs to be in that environment that switches their brain to learning those are the students that 
I think we now uh, almost fail as an educational system. Those are the students that do not have the discipline uh, to, to manage their own time. And those are the ones that fail to hand in their tasks, fail to show up on time. And the second truth is that we need to embrace the opportunity for distance learning. Um, for students who, who might be in, in sports, doing sports at high levels, for whatever reason, cannot make it to school, we need to include it now because we know it works. This is no more, no more uh, a matter of we don't know how to do it because we do. Now it's going to be a matter of willingness. And I think schools will be criticized heavily now if they don't, you know, uh, engage uh, and have a look at their own study curriculum and opportunities and say, like, we can offer you distant learning in case you're ill at home or if you are away for a valid reason. Um, I, I think we've learned way more in this involuntary experiment than we ever have in any kind of training with all the good intentions that training programs have. I just don't think that there was a better uh, way to maybe, I, I'm, I'm hesitant to say this, but I think this is an educational revolution that we have experienced now, um, knowing that it's possible. I think that there might be an issue uh, on the horizon which maybe is uncomfortable for some uh, lawmakers to actually address, which is uh, um, about a week or two ago, Miley's reps, the education minister, was interviewed and said uh, she hasn't got any immediate plans to move straight back to distance learning in September, um, even though the prime minister has said in a, in a separate interview that um, there may be a second wave of coronavirus in late summer or early autumn which seems to tally with September quite heavily so um, should there be contingency plans and to what degree do you feel the education ministry should be advising on distance learning tools should be trying to retrain teachers who maybe are not digitally savvy like yourself uh, what do you think should happen I think it's a very hard question because um, a lot of people like Estonia now has 1.3 million experts on, on the topic of uh, how to manage a crisis. And I, I really don't want to become one of those. Um, I, I hope that we don't need to go back, but I think we should be prepared for the second wave. Um, we have summer coming up. We, we don't really know what people are doing. We can't control our students. Uh, as a matter of fact, I know that a lot of them have been ignoring social distancing, but we also have no medical proof for how the virus spreads. Um, we, we're slowly, we have the option to be back in school and I was there today and the way that I see how my students interact, yeah, I, I don't think they're socially distancing. Um, I am not sure if we should, you know, very, we, we can we cannot say with any sense of certainty like no we're gonna go back to normal teaching or no we are going to back to uh distant teaching until we have more uh, awareness of the situation we, we we've noticed every two weeks there was an update of on how we could do things um, i find it very hard to predict uh what the future will bring i i i for one i don't want to go back to distant uh teaching but if it's needed we'll do it but the way it's important, I think, is that uh, in spite of all these uh, uh, lovely success stories of self-guided um, students, there's still um, quite a remarkable group of 
of uh, pupils, I think more more so in uh, in younger age groups who have actually uh, lost track during this time, who don't have the supportive environment at home or don't have the technological possibilities available to them, who have actually lost three months of, of the school year and are now going to forget a lot of what they've learned uh, within the three months of summer break. So I think there needs to be some sort of a contingency plan for... Uh, uh, for uh, the weaker students to uh, help them keep up and also some sort of a backup or retraining or help for teachers who didn't really cope with this uh, distant learning and, did, and are not able to make use of all this new technology. To give you an example, how my both of my sons in grade A learn um, Russian is that they get... Uh, a number of uh, sheets to be printed out at home, to be filled in with um, pen, to be photographed and sent back to the teacher. I don't think this is an effective way of distant learning. Um, and uh, for sure, it's not a digital, um, it's not it's not a way of uh, making the most of the digital opportunities. So there's a lot of catching up to do, both in terms of a weaker pupils as well as um, let's say technologically weak or methodologically weaker teachers no i totally agree um i i, I think it's safe to say that uh, we've we've had the best case scenario we have had the the tools available to us um we compiled a course for teachers immediately like the on I think it was either Wednesday or Thursday where the the announcement was uh, publicized about uh, going to distance studying. I think it was somewhere around three o'clock on Thursday or something. We were uh, at 10 o'clock on Friday, we were all uh, gathered for training on distance teaching and the tools that we can use, going both over Google Meets and, and Discord. And on Monday we were teaching that way. That is the best case scenario. I, I would say, uh, I think you'll agree with me there that I don't think that many schools have managed to do it that fast. Um, yeah, that sounds like um, like an ideal scenario, really. Yeah, and I, I'm I feel absolutely privileged that I've managed to teach in in such an environment. But I know that not all schools have done this, and many schools have worked with task lists uh, and homework packs. I know that's not distant teaching; that is dropping teaching and just saying. Uh, good luck and uh, find this out yourself. And I don't think that any school should be happy with themselves teaching in such a manner. Um, I think that while we would argue that, you know, parents can teach, uh, you know, the lower grades themselves, that shouldn't be the intention. I think that it's important for younger learners to still, for a fragment of the day, at least see their teacher have maybe uh, some way of following up with what they've been doing checking orally maybe like what that work has been about you can't expect parents to keep doing that because uh you know all the economists are saying like we should get back to work as soon as possible and I, i'm not one to argue there but yeah. there's a big there's a big problem here we we have the availability uh computer is not substituting a teacher we cannot expect a seven-year-old to sit at a screen and be self-guided um but yeah i i think that it's a hard question who is responsible for um 
making it so that teaching is actually teaching and not just giving a homework that is probably never checked. I think this is the feeling that many parents have, but I'm not sure who is responsible here. Um, According to the Estonian uh, school system, uh, the schools have a high grade of autonomy in uh, deciding about how they teach. They just have the targets of uh, certain skills that need to be, or certain uh, overall competences that need to be achieved. So it's up to the school uh, headmasters. more or less to uh, to make sure that their uh, that their staff is able and up to scratch to yeah. do that. Let's hope they uh, they uh, take it to heart and uh, and make the effort. Sile Verzaste is a journalism and communications student at Tartu University, and we spoke to her today about her feelings on distance learning as a university student. Uh, I think for me, it's been relatively easy because um, <clears throat> of the subject I learned. But I know from my friends that not all institutes are uh, coping with the communication part too well. And so, yes, there there's not, um, not much information uh, put out to the students. Uh, they don't know whether they have to be somewhere at a certain time or how are the homeworks, uh, is there something changed or not? Uh, but for me, I think it's it's really good. Yes. Is there actually a uh, platform like the E-Call or uh, Studium for universities that you would uh, use in a normal time? Uh, yes, well, there's this well, for Tartu University at least, uh, the main platform, which is UIS, Uppe Info System, uh, and then there's also Moodle platform, uh, where there also are courses and homeworks and uh, dates and stuff. So I guess technologically, the, the university was just as, uh, just as prepared as any other um, main uh, school, but um, the, the difference here maybe is that uh, at the university age, um, one would expect the students to be quite self-guided and self-motivated. Uh, how has your experience been with that? Or would you, would you still benefit from a uh, set schedule that you have a seminar or a lecture at a certain time and date? Well, that that differs from from subject to subject. Like uh, all the, uh, uh, it differs from professor to professor whether they uh, just put like pre-recorded lectures uh, for students to watch, or whether they make it uh, real time so that people can comment and be also on video and microphone. So yeah, it differs. But what about the motivation and self-guided uh, approach? Uh, well, at first it was it was difficult because it's it's so easy to just not open your computer and and not look at what you have to do. But at some point, uh, guilt got the best of me. <laughs> so so I I started doing things pretty regularly. And I find that um, 
like writing things down and making like to-do lists and stuff is really, really important to to get anything done when you don't have to be somewhere or you can do it all in the comfort of your own bed. Not even just only uh, in terms of schoolwork, but I guess like, uh, well, I... I spent um, two of my first university years at the Tartu University Journalism uh, Faculty and uh, uh, I think uh, in the hindsight the most valuable bit of it was socializing with uh, the fellow students of the faculty. So uh, I bet you missed this part. Yeah, of course, of course we missed it. like this, the the special thing about our institute or the people or and the professors is that we, uh, for example, have like info lessons uh, over over one week or something like that, where uh, we all get together. We talk about things that are being well done, things that could be improved, and I think it's it's one of a kind. Uh, in Dartu's university, I I haven't heard that any other uh, fields have done that, uh, but it really helps to socialize, to to make things better. Are you in Tartu at the moment? Yes, yes. Yeah. So, how have you noticed the city opening up, and uh, have um, have you noticed it sort of getting back to normal, or are, are there still some things closed and some changes right now? Oh, it's definitely coming back to coming back to normal. There are children riding their bikes and people running, and you can you can really see that people have missed being outside. And uh, the coffee shops are opening, restaurants are opening. Also, that differs. In some places, they have almost gathered every desk from the restaurant and. There's only like three, four desks left, so that the two-meter rule could be followed. The waitresses are wearing face masks. There's uh, disinfection uh, everywhere. While the well, there are other restaurants that are letting people book like uh, tables for 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 eight people, which is which is kind of weird, but. Mm. That's how it is right now. Yes. You talked about um, how uh, distance learning is a bit improvised, or it has been. Um, that 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 was generally the kind of thing that you said. In in your opinion, is distance learning something that teachers should motivate themselves to um, to get used to and to get better at, or is it something that the education system, for example, the government or the institutions, should be should be giving people? Uh, you know, systems and processes that they that um, that can be rolled out more generally. Well, of course, teachers are improvising. There, there is no book of uh, of things to do when when a crisis hits, like uh, like it has been. And I think that well, teachers are just people like every other, and they have different abilities and uh, different like digital digital uh, availabilities. For example, like. Probably some teachers don't have a have a computer at home, so they have had to somehow make uh, things work. I think it's right that uh, that the teacher can decide 
what and how to do because I generally trust teachers and I think that uh, they know their students. Well, it all depends on like the city, the school, the class. It depends on everything. So I don't think it would be a necessarily great idea to to have like strict rules and strict things to follow. I think it's uh, it's good that the teachers have uh, have the opportunity to choose and modify things according to their students. Thank you for listening to Questonia. You can subscribe to the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your audio. Our next program will be on Thursday, 11th of June. Bye for now.